0: Hello everyone, welcome back From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. My name is Alex Murrow, and if this is your first time with us, welcome. We are a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in and out of the field of public health. Today, we are talking with Dr. Maya Roberson, she is an assistant professor in the Department of Health Policy at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. Dr. Roberson's research focuses on how to apply epidemiologic methods to health service research to promote health equity using big data. Some of her specific interests are in equity in cancer care delivery for Black people in the Southern United States. Dr. Roberson will be featured at the college's October 20th Spotlight Series, where she will be leading a discussion on how researchers can think about how their work impacts health equity. She completed her MSPH and PhD in Epidemiology at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Welcome to the show, Dr. Roberson.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Alex.
0: So just to get us started, can you maybe tell us more about your path in public health and how you ended up in your current position?
1: Sure. So I... I had no idea what public health was when I was in high school. I think like many folks, I went to college, undergrad at Brown University, and I thought that I wanted to major in psychology. And I heard from an upperclassman that intro to public health was a great elective to take. I was looking for a class to fill out my schedule. I didn't know what to take. and uh, kind of on a whim, this upperclassman who recommended Intro to public health to me. And so I took it my freshman year. And I realized that I enjoyed public health a lot more than psychology, no knock for the psychologist, but I just felt so much more engaged um, that it, it really gripped my interests. And so I kept taking some more public health classes to feel it out, to see if it's what I wanted to do, and ended up finding some really great mentors who have supported me and still continue to support me to this day. My um, Freshman public health professors ended up being my senior thesis advisors who introduced me to some folks uh, in graduate school as well at, at UNC. And so I majored in public health as an undergraduate as I, I guess, kind of bobbled around in these courses and realized that it was what I really enjoyed doing. And right after my bachelor's degree, I enrolled straight into graduate school uh, in a combined MSPH, the PhD program in epidemiology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I realized very early on in undergrad that I was interested in cancer disparities. I remember uh, taking cancer epidemiology as an undergrad junior and seeing a figure of breast cancer mortality differences by race. And it was just so stark that Black women had Uh, substantially higher mortality than uh, any other group. And to me, that was just so unacceptable. And so from that time, I decided that I wanted to study, how can we close that gap? How can we have better cancer care for for Black women specifically? And that's what I went to University of North Carolina to study. Uh, I had the great fortune of working with the Carolina Breast Cancer Study for my master's thesis while there, which is one of the really foundational studies in breast cancer disparities research nationally, not just at North Carolina. And while I was uh, in my graduate program, I realized that I was interested much more in cancer care delivery factors rather than traditional epidemiology exposure outcome. And while the analytic principles truly do apply, uh, my way of thinking about these sorts of inequities shifted a little bit. And so I completed my dissertation work earlier this year in August, 2021. And the topic of that work was specifically around uh, cancer care delivery, surgical care delivery for black women with breast cancer in the state of North Carolina. And I'm carrying those interests forward uh, in equity and cancer care delivery to my faculty position that I just recently started uh, about a month ago at Vanderbilt in a department of health policy where broadening, broadening out a little bit from breast cancer and thinking about how can we make cancer care delivery more broadly better for black folks because some of the issues that are happening in breast cancer are also happening in other cancer types as well. And how can we apply that knowledge to uh, other areas to make sure that cancer outcomes are better for everyone?
0: Yeah, I I think your career path is really interesting. I like the um, kind of that the intro to public health classes what sparked it all. Um, I think a lot of the people in my program too, like we talk about how that was a big class for us. We didn't know public health was. So you kind of touched on this when you were talking about your experience in undergrad, but as black first generation student, what role has mentorship had during your career? And then also kind of building off of that, what advice would you have for other first-gen students in terms of like networking or finding research positions or even sometimes dealing with things like imposter syndrome?
1: Yeah, that is such a great question. And truthfully, mentorship has been everything. Uh, So a little bit more about my personal background. I am from Appalachia, a small town in Pennsylvania. My hometown had around 5,000 people. uh, Decent number of kids went to college every year uh, for my high school, but once I went to college, I realized that there are high schools from which everybody (laughs) goes to college every year, and that was not the kind of place that that I grew up in. Certainly, um, most folks had stayed relatively local, uh, and I had had wanted to see what was outside of Pennsylvania as well, but had no real way of knowing exactly how to do that. Uh, My mother was a waitress and worked in food service my whole life, and my dad was a steel worker uh, turned landscaping business owner, Um, and so neither of them had really anything to do with higher education at all, but they for sure absolutely encouraged me uh, 100%. They didn't know the exact steps for me to get there, uh, but they were behind me 100% when I said that I wanted to leave Pennsylvania, which was very shocking for my small town when uh folks even when they go to college uh tend to stay stay pretty nearby and so they supported me uh, to the best that they could but when i got to undergrad it was truthfully very jarring so i was entirely academically unprepared uh all around like quantitatively my writing skills it was a shock my first semester Uh, And that's scary. That is really scary to encounter. And I was lucky to have found public health so early on, because the mentors that I found through those classes, I felt that with them, nothing was a foolish question. Uh, And I felt that I could struggle and they wouldn't think that that I wasn't intelligent. Like the problem wasn't my intelligence, it was the structural issues that uh, led to my lack of preparedness that truthfully started at K through 12. Um, which is (laughs) probably another, another podcast episode. Uh, But, but to the point, um, the intro to public health professor, I remember was so open about her office hours. And what I mean by that is that she didn't typically hold her office hours in the, in her office. She held them in one of the main student hubs on campus. And thinking back, that made such a big difference because it, it made her seem much more approachable. And uh, so I I would be there every Friday or whenever <laughs> whenever she had them to, to talk about the, the material for that week or what have you and really started building a great relationship with her. And once I realized that doctors aren't so scary and that there were supports in place to make sure that I did have what I need to succeed, that I like, didn't have to drop out of college or anything like that. I just maybe needed a little extra help to catch up. Uh, things started turning around for me and I am grateful for those mentors that, that took me under their wing early on. Um, a professor that I had had who taught the second uh, first year course in the public health major called healthcare in the United States, He took me on as a research assistant. So because I was a first-generation college student from a low-income background, I was also on work-study, and for my first couple of years of undergrad, I worked in retail and various odd jobs that had nothing to do with my current or future career path, but I needed to make money. Um, It it was the reality of the the matter, and I didn't realize that you could get a work-study job as a research assistant. And uh, this professor knew that I was interested in learning more tangibly about public health, knew my reality of needing to work. I couldn't be an on-page research assistant, that was not in the cards for me and uh, set up for me to do a work study for him. And I was doing pretty basic tasks like data entry tasks, checking over manuscripts and, and things like that. It wasn't like that much of a heavy lift, but. That truly sparked my initial interest in doing research, like the really like menial minute things. I just enjoyed so much, Um, and that's when I really started thinking about how research might might be a path for me, and so I continued working on that project and other ones as I progressed in my undergraduate education with increasing responsibility as I develop more useful skills over the course of my education as well that uh, culminated in a senior thesis which was an independently led study that I did and was mentored through and I to your original question about the role of mentorship I mean I am fortunate that as an undergraduate senior I was able to have mentors who saw potential in my research ideas, who saw how passionate I was about closing this gap in cancer outcomes, which is specifically breast cancer outcomes, and let me run with that and develop a patient-centered project on my own that I went out uh, and conducted and supported me through that uh, instead of just saying, oh, here's this little piece of something that I'm working on which for for some folks who may not be at a stage where they're ready to develop their own ideas, that may be a perfectly feasible thing for them. But I I think I got pushed out of the nest a little bit in the best way possible uh, to think independently uh, about what kind of contributions that I could make. And so that started very early on and uh, started like quite literally by me simply going to office hours, at at that early stage and and building relationships, then reaching out to folks after that, once I had gained more confidence uh, about thinking specifically about my research interest in cancer care delivery. And it's a very long-winded answer, but I'll just wrap up by saying that uh, those mentors still haven't forgotten me. I keep in touch with them every couple of months uh, in the before times when I would uh, be back up uh, in the Northeast visiting, I would always see them as well. Uh, and they additionally introduced me to folks at UNC uh, when I started graduate school, who became mentors to me, who then introduced me to additional folks at Vanderbilt, where I'm now working. So it's truly a chain reaction uh, of mentorship when you're able to find good ones. Uh, and specifically as a first-generation college student, finding mentors who understood my reality, um, let me ask the silly questions, who didn't mock or talk negatively about what I did or didn't know, has honestly made all the difference. And now knowing that there are so few faculty members who they themselves are first generation college students, one of the most things, one of the most important things for me is to pay it forward and to continue mentoring the students who are like me. Uh, who went to undergrad probably unprepared and not really knowing what direction is for them because it's
0: truly had a profound impact on my career. Yeah, I connect with a lot of the things that you said. I'm also a first-gen student, so I remember when I came um, to college, I was terrified of office hours. I thought that like my professors would eat me alive if I went there. Like, what do you even talk about with office hours? Questions like that. Yeah. Mentors are great. And actually, one of the questions I have as a follow up is now as an instructor, as a faculty member, or even for our listeners who are faculty or TAs, how can we be more approachable to those first gen students? Because I tell my students in class, like, please come talk to me. Like, I don't bite. I want to see you in office hours. But I know that a lot of them are still afraid. So how can we connect with those students?
1: Yeah, you know, I will speak more from my experience as a TA, because I just started a month ago not teaching yet uh, here at at Vanderbilt with COVID. I honestly haven't gotten that much of a chance to interact with students yet, unfortunately. But when I was a TA uh, for, gosh, more classes than I can count uh, in graduate school, one of the things that I knew and realized is that the way in which we give feedback matters a lot, whether it's writing, whether it's on a quantitative data set, uh, the way we guide and help students and the language that we use when we perhaps issue correction uh, has a very big impact on how they see us as instructors, be that TAs, be that professors, whatever level. And one of the things that I, really tried to do and will continue to try to do like let folks know they did a good job it, it is it can really be that simple I mean I know when I would pass back assignments we, we used to put them in student mailboxes or, or what have you like I would catch the students in the hallway and say like hey you did a great job or like I really appreciated your work or if it was a writing assignment leaving something in the margins about an argument that I thought that they made that was really well thought out so that the feedback that they get isn't always critical uh, or always negative. It's just as important to point out the things that folks did well or that you like uh, as it is about making sure that they're on the right track, just methodologically or analytically or whatever type of assignment that is. So I, I think that that's one way that I've definitely tried to make a connection with, with my students. And um, I think after establishing that rapport where they knew that they could trust me a little bit more and that I wasn't always going to like <laughs> jump on them or, or what have you that uh, I, like they could come to me for affirmation uh, as well regardless of the level of student is, is so important because I quite honestly think in higher ed and academia that there isn't enough affirmation going around especially thinking about the power power structures that may exist between faculty TAs and students, um, there's there's enough space for affirmation to go around, um, even if it's in a space where you need to be critical and make sure that students are on the right track and provide correction as well. I think that sometimes there is this tension that if you're kind, or if you're nice, you're not rigorous, and I think that those are unnecessarily at odds with each other, quite honestly, and that you can be kind and also rigorous, and one of the, I think one of the most memorable things for me uh, being a, a, a TA when I was in graduate school, at the end of one semester of ours, ta a main MPH class, I'd gotten a note in my student mailbox about how much of a better writer I made a student and that they were grateful that I had taken this approach where I could tell them that they needed to restructure their paper because the organization wasn't great, but at the same time, acknowledge that they were making a, a really clever argument. And this is how I would frame it as like, this is how you could improve it, not this needs to be entirely redone. And that, ha- that goes such a long way in uh, establishing rapport and building relationships and making yourself more approachable to students who uh, may not have necessarily have had affirmation or may not uh, be walking into your classroom most prepared. Uh, there's always something good in every assignment. I, I really believe that uh, making sure that students know that those things exist as well can, uh, can really help out in building those relationships.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for that insight. I hope that, you know, our listeners at any level of instructors that they are will, you know, hopefully take that into mind. So kind of moving on to about your individual research, can you talk more about how you specifically integrate your training in epi and also health service research? And I also know that you've touched on this already with being made aware of the cancer disparities, and that's why you got interested in cancer as your focus area. But why did you specifically choose cancer? Because there's racial disparities in a lot of different issues. So like, I know that I got into public health because of racial disparities in maternal mortality. So I'm just wondering like, why specifically cancer out of all the um, diseases?
1: Yeah, I'll I'll start by answering that question first and then uh, coming back to the first part of the question about how I integrate epi and health services research. So it was a little bit, Serendipitous and a little bit and a lot of bit of genuine interest. So as you had mentioned, there are racial disparities in name your health outcome. They exist basically everywhere. Uh, I took cancer epidemiology as an undergrad just because it was an elective that was available as I as I was a uh, second semester junior and needed a higher level course, and it seemed interesting. And I really engaged that material and thinking about how cancer touches almost everybody's life. And so like, we all know someone who's had cancer. Like basically, I would be surprised uh, if there was someone out there who didn't, whether it was a friend, a grandparent, a parent, um, a teacher, uh, it it is something that is quite frankly everywhere. And that was something that that resonated with me and my own uh, older sister is a cancer survivor. My aunt's a cancer survivor. So it was something that was very closely personal
0: to me as
1: well. And so I, it was partially right place at the right time that I took uh, cancer epidemiology so early in my educational career and also seeing these connections with broader society and how many lives that it really unfortunately touches. And so I just took that and, and ran with it uh, as a substantive area. And I am glad that I did because it has been a really good fit, and I feel like the work that I do is meaningful and it, it matters and can hopefully, my ultimate goal is one day to hopefully shift the needle on the inequities that we see in cancer outcomes. Uh, in terms of how I integrate epidemiology with health services research and health policy. So uh, one of the things that's important to note about my academic background is that while I was in graduate school, I received the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation uh, Health Policy Research Scholar Award, which was a four-year graduate training award that allowed me to do just that. So this uh, program through the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation selects a cohort of uh, PhD uh, scholars every year uh, from a wide variety of fields from epidemiology, engineering, anthropology, religious studies, you name it, all with a common goal of integrating health policy into our home fields. Uh, So that training was truthfully invaluable for me and was really where I found the synthesis of my interests, especially as I realized that I was particularly interested in issues related to care delivery. Uh, That's much more about health policy than a classical epidemiological issue. And um, so, through this training program, we learned about how to think about the policy angles for your work. And that's big P policy, thinking about legislation and federal policy and state policy, but also potentially organizational policy or local policies that may be affecting the health issues that we cared about. Uh, we learned a lot about science and lay communication, which is something that has always been important to me. Uh, one of the things that I say is that. For me, it's very important that I'm able to communicate what I do back to my parents and back to folks like the place that that I grew up and not just epidemiology or public health PhDs because folks like that are the ones who ultimately benefit the most uh, from my work. And if I can't communicate with them, then I've lost touch of what I wanted to do. And so for me, I guess in my day-to-day thinking about the integration of these two fields, I'm always mapping out what sorts of different levels of policies affect the issues that uh, I care about, what what is on the legislative agenda that's related to cancer, where have things gone, where are uh, potential windows of opportunity, uh, and definitely being in an academic health policy department now rather than an epidemiology department, I will continue to lean into those sorts of intersections uh, to hopefully think about how we can better support folks with cancer uh, throughout their care and treatment trajectories.
0: Yeah I think it's a really interesting like intersection of fields because I know that a lot of times in my courses Epi is really good at pointing out the issues but then it's kind of like all right well now what what do we do from here so um, I think, you know, comparing or like um, using the two of them, it's it's what we need to do to move forward. We've identified these disparities. Now we actually have to try and, and change them or bring change. So when you're doing your research, I've seen like on some of your uh, biography pages that you use big data. So for those who might not know, can you explain what big data is and why these data sets or big data is important in epidemiology research, but also public health research?
1: Yeah, so big data means different things to different folks in different fields. So I've specifically worked with a lot of big healthcare data. So that is thinking about insurance claims data, where you can think about questions related to healthcare utilization for a variety of health outcomes. Electronic health records data from integrated healthcare systems to observe a different aspect of care utilization, oftentimes at a deeper level, but with a more restricted population. Um, one of my favorites, and I'll, I'll delve a little bit deeper into, is uh, working with cancer registry data. Uh, that to me is, is also a form of big data, and truthfully, one of the best. Uh, surveillance systems that we have built in across the United States. So all 50 states have cancer registries uh, where all cancers of any type, uh, not just breast cancer, which is what I primarily study, are reported to uh, state or federal agencies with a high level of granularity about stage of diagnosis, and where people live, and these registries also uh, capture a uh, baseline level of treatment that uh, patients have received. And to me, one of the neat things about cancer registries, specifically thinking about health equity, is that compared to some other sorts of like healthcare big data that exists, cancer registries literally include everyone who is diagnosed with cancer. It doesn't matter if someone is uninsured, It doesn't matter if they received their treatment at a particular like University of Iowa cancer center or like some small cancer center that's down the road and um, not nearly as well known. Everybody who has cancer is going to end up in the registry. And that was um, part of what my dissertation focused on, actually, is thinking about how we could potentially leverage cancer registries to uh, gain a better idea of cancer trends in under and unrepresented populations that may not be caught uh, elsewhere in things like insurance claims which by definition require someone to be insured or electronic health records which require folks to seek care at certain specific places.
0: I'm actually taking um, a class right now with Dr. Mary Charlton and we've been going over the cancer registries and honestly I'm constantly amazed at just how detailed some of the like Information that they get and how they how they get the information. I'm just like sometimes in shock when we I, we've been using these databases because I'm like, oh my god, like, yeah, how did they report I could, everyone?
1: I could nerd out about cancer registries for forever because, like, the as you were mentioning, the level of data that's collected on all of these patients is truly amazing, and the fact that it is so systematic across the United States, like there are very few other things like that. And I just feel in my personal opinion that they're very undone <laughs> and underappreciated.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I almost want to tell everyone that I know about like these. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this kind of touches on this, too. But so thinking about in this past year, so we've had an increased attention and in racial disparities and health equity. So I was wondering if you see any improvement in the future um, particularly with the registries too, like um, when we think about how we've been surveilling COVID, there's a lot of registries that don't break down things by race or, you know, income or whatever variable. Like we just have really bad data collection, and we can't even look at these disparities. So, what strategies? can public health practitioners or research use to improve outcomes for disadvantaged groups, whether it be COVID, cancer, or any other issue?
1: Yeah, I think truthfully from the baseline, we need to acknowledge that equity matters and that diseases, whether they be COVID or cancer or uh, maternal mortality, which you mentioned was previously in interest of yours, uh, affect different groups differently. Like, I don't think that everyone is really willing to acknowledge that previously, quite honestly, um, then COVID really laid that bare when we started seeing that uh, black and brown folks and folks in certain public facing low wage occupations uh, were getting severely more impacted by COVID than, than other folks. And I think with that, increased attention that's really forced people to I don't necessarily want to say everybody's paying attention, but I think it at least raised the awareness of these issues. I mean, so, so social epidemiologists and other health disparities and health equity researchers have been screaming this from the from the rooftops for a while, but to get that mainstream attention, I mean, I didn't honestly think that we'd see like the New York Times and Washington Post and other public media uh, covering health equity on a regular basis. And things like that matter uh, quite quite a bit. So it's not just uh, those of us who have been doing this work for a bit, shouting from the rooftops a bit into the void uh, that these that these issues are even issues in the first place. So I think that like level setting um, before even moving further than that is is step number one. And to your question about what what can we do as public health researchers, public health, practitioners, I mean, something that I think a lot about, and I'll be talking a bit about uh, in my talk in a couple of weeks, is that health equity, everything has an equity implication, Uh, whether we're equity, consider ourselves equity researchers or not. Work that we do, different policies, interventions, they are either going to uphold the status quo of Inequity, which exists for a major health outcome, it it doesn't really matter if we're talking about cancer or COVID or what have you, Um, maintain the status quo, they're going to make inequities worse, uh, which we've seen in certain spaces, particularly related to new innovations and treatments, that they can go to folks who can afford them and not necessarily the folks who are most affected by issues or where we should ideally all strive to is reduce inequities uh, and so one of the things that I really urge researchers and practitioners is to think about what are the equity implications of what you're, what you're thinking about, what you're studying, the policies and interventions and, and issues that you care about. Do they maintain the status quo? Or are they making inequities worse? or Are they doing something to make them better? Uh, and if you want to ideally make them better, I don't think that everybody themselves necessarily needs to be an equity researcher, but they can partner with the equity researchers and practitioners to start thinking about how we can move the needle on these issues.
0: I know that even myself, I guess, before I really got into this graduate program, I didn't realize that they were social epidemiologists. Um, I came from a, a microbiology background, so I was kind of like, oh, maybe I'll just like infectious disease or something like that. And that's interesting. But yeah, social epidemiology, really interesting. And health equity is a really important topic. And I think that no matter where you are, there's still so much to learn, like you're never really gonna know it all, you know, exactly. thinking about your spotlight series coming up, is there anything that you would like to tell our listeners, like as a plug to really come? or?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I probably nestled my plug in uh, my response to the last answer, but I hope the listeners to the Spotlight series come with an open mind uh, and willing to think about how health equity does or frankly does not touch their own work and uh, what they can do to uh, better support health equity research, better support students uh, and and others who are uh, working in this space as well.
0: Yeah, I know that I will definitely be making it to that talk. I've learned so much just with like talking with you for 30 minutes. So I'm excited to see like what your actual talk is about. Just to kind of finish off for today, one of the things that we like to ask all of our guests is what is one thing that you thought you knew, but were later wrong about? Yeah,
1: you know, when you had sent me this question in advance, I think it was probably one of the hardest questions I have ever been asked. And Uh, have been sitting uh, with it for a little bit. And I, it's not necessarily a research answer. It's a little bit more of a a personal uh, trajectory kind of answer. But uh, one of the things I was definitely wrong about, I think in my own naivete, uh, when I enrolled at graduate school, is that life wouldn't happen. Uh, As silly as that seems, I thought that uh, real life would happen when I was on to the next stage. I was after school. Uh, I could just fit have focus on on my dissertation, and I mean that both a, a positive and, and a negative way. Um, so when I was in graduate school, um, my dad uh, was hospitalized in my second year and was in the ICU and in the hospital for six weeks. And uh, I remember my mom calling me at the time. I was like, "Oh, you're in school. I don't want to bother you." Um, but school can wait because life happens. UNCO is always still going to be there, uh, and I think back about how I—I I was just like honestly so shocked and jarred that like, oh my goodness, what <laughs> what am I going to do? Because I'm in school, I'm having this major major life event. I wasn't prepared for this to happen, but like truthfully, and if, if anything, that this last almost two years has shown us, especially. <laughs> um, that these sorts of things, like, life doesn't pause for us to be enrolled in graduate school, um, and, and I thought about that on the opposite, happier side as well. Um, I met my husband while I was in graduate school and, like, wasn't ready for that. That I was like, oh, I'll meet my future husband when I'm done and on to the next thing, uh, and, and life had other plans, and so, um, particularly for any student listeners, graduate student listeners, and, to even undergrad potential listeners, um, let both the, the ups and the downs of life still happen in grad school. And I was entirely wrong thinking that, like, I could just push pause on everything that wasn't academic, good and bad, and just table that until I was in the next phase. Um, and truthfully, I probably would have done some things a little bit differently. Like, I wish I would have gone home a little bit more, um, even though there was a very real. Uh, financial constraints of of being a graduate student, uh, particularly early on before I had my side hustles lined up. Uh, But thinking about things like that, that like, I could have missed a day of class to go home. So I could have like seen my nieces dance recital or something like that. Uh, And so that was one of the things that uh, I have experienced a lot of growth from. And I know I'm definitely approaching my faculty position a lot differently than I approach that that life isn't going to wait until after I get tenure like it is happening now it's uh, important to experience all all of the seasons of life but the highs and the lows and not hope that it can hold off or wait until you're
0: after that next thing uh, that's really good advice and honestly I should probably take a little of that into heart too <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to me and agreeing to come on to this podcast. I I had a really great time, and I hope that you did, too. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for our episode this week. Big thanks to Dr. Robertson for coming on with us today. This episode was hosted, written, edited, and produced by Alex Murrah. You can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with your colleagues. Our team can be reached at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Stay happy, stay healthy, and keep learning.